you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. We come to Acts chapter 14, uh, we actually come to the conclusion of Paul's first missionary journey, and we see uh, a common theme in his missionary journey is that as he's committed himself to the Lord, he commits those churches that he plants in his missionary journeys to the Lord with the every intention that they will live lives that reflect that commitment. And so Paul, Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 14, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number, both Jews and Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men. We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, 
where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered, the church gathered together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, uh, we pray uh, that our lives too would be marked by a reality of being committed to you and to your grace. Uh, that despite the opposition of the world, that we would seek to make much, of, make much of Christ for all that he has done for us. For there is no other salvation outside of Christ. There is no other hope outside of Christ. And every good and perfect gift that anyone enjoys is from you, the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow due to change. And because of that, we know that our purpose is the same today, to continue to make much of Christ and point others to the salvation that is found in Christ and we pray that if there are any who have not found that salvation, that they would today. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So we consider this gospel message that had been committed to Paul, an act of God's grace. We come to the conclusion in light of this chapter uh, that there are some realities that come with the gospel. First off, as we study this passage, we uh, learn and we're reminded of the fact that the gospel brings with it division. You, you don't have to be uh, the sharpest study to understand that as the gospel is coming into this dark world of paganism, it is bringing with it division. Secondly, the gospel creates community. There is a new understanding, a new community that is being birthed here in the Gentile world as Paul and Barnabas and the others bring the gospel to the Gentile world. And lastly, it brings with it joy. Brings with it joy and hope. Paul, uh, they continue their missionary journey. We know last week we saw that they had to kick their feet, the dust off their feet, as they had gone to Iconium, as their message had not been well received. There had been a plot to persecute them. And that persecution continues to follow them. You know, sometimes we get this mistaken understanding that if we're followers of Christ, everyone's going to like us. That understanding of the gospel is completely foreign to the New Testament. Jesus himself understood that his gospel was a divisive influence. Jesus himself said that he did not come to bring peace, but the sword. Jesus promised that his gospel message would divide homes, it would divide families, it would divide husbands and wives, children from their parents. And as we see here, it divides communities. So Paul and Barnabas, apostles in the sense that they have been sent out, uh, which is what the word, Greek word for apostle really means. It's a transliteration straight into English. It means somebody who's been sent out 
The twelve had been sent out by Christ, and now Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the church in Antioch to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And we're told that as they're preaching in the Jewish synagogue, that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But at the same time, you have to remember Paul, who's doing this missionary journey. Uh, he's learning from this experience, and he would tell the church of Corinth that the gospel is aroma of life to those who are being saved, and it is an aroma to death to those who are condemned. You know, the Puritans would say that the same sun that melts the snow is the same sun that hardens the clay. And so as the gospel works and permeates among this group of people, a great number are being saved. But there's also a great number that are actually opposed to what they're hearing. And so Luke tells us with that big three-letter word in verse 2, but... So a great number are believing, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So you have unbelieving Jews, you have Jews who have rejected their Messiah, and what they're doing is they're convincing those Gentiles who have not believed to be opposed to the gospel. They are stirring up persecution. And we often think that persecution and hardship means that we need to stop. You know, somebody gets angry with us for sharing the gospel at work, we just stop. You know, Paul would say that when there is a wide door of effective service, that with it comes much opposition. And so Paul sees this opposition as not an invitation to leave, but an invitation to preach more. Note what he does. So that the minds of many have been poisoned against them. And so Paul, verse 3, remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Now, I'm just going to say this as an aside. I don't think any of you uh, 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 would fall in, in, into this trap, but I, I, I hear that there's something called a, a, a parade of miracles going on somewhere in Kentucky. You know, sometimes what happens is that there are individuals that say they're doing signs and wonders, and, and if you pay careful attention, it's usually divorced from the gospel. When we read Acts, uh, signs and wonders, and the clear proclamation of the gospel went hand in hand. It wasn't that they were doing signs and wonders and taking up an offering. It was that they were proclaiming the gospel and the Lord himself was bearing witness through the signs and wonders that had happened. Speaking boldly, again, verse 3, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And yet at the same time, that division is continuing to develop. So Luke tells us again in verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. So the gospel has come to Iconium. People are getting saved. And yet on the other hand, there are people who are rejecting the gospel, who are becoming militant in their opposition to the gospel. 
So let us not think that where there is division between believer and unbeliever, that the gospel somehow is not working. The gospel does bring division between believer and unbeliever because it is the gospel that brings us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. It is the gospel by which we are saved that we come from being a child of wrath, a son of disobedience to child of God. And so this division is continuing to permeate the city, Luke tells us. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And those who are divided, their animosity builds to a fever pitch, we're told, in verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So Paul and the others hear that they're going to die. So they understand now's the time to leave, to continue proclaiming the gospel elsewhere. So they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and they continue to preach the gospel. We're called to exercise our wisdom now, there are contexts where we understand maybe it's time to move on. You know, you, you uh, go door to door witnessing somewhere and, and the person that answers the door says, hey, honey, get me my shotgun. It's time to skedaddle along. We're not afraid of martyrdom, but we're not to intentionally seek it out. Paul was not intentionally seeking out martyrdom. He understood that hardship was going to come. He understood that the enemy was going to work through the kingdom of darkness, which is those who don't know Christ to oppose the gospel. But he understood that he had a gospel to bring to the world. And so they continue on. Uh, they bring the gospel to Lystra. They heal a man uh, who is unable to walk, who had been crippled from birth, never walked a step in his life. And Paul makes it very clear what the gospel is about. Now imagine the temptation that Paul and Barnabas felt in that moment. Here they are, they've healed a man and everybody's worshiping him. Think of human nature. You know, we all love it when people make much of us. Think of if they had had ill motives and ill intentions, any inkling, inclination to that way, how easy it would have been for them to be led astray there. They heal this man, and rather than making much of themselves, they tear their garments and they rush out crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. And, and as we see, this good news is going to be what transforms them. Paul is taking a different approach than he does with those who are aware of the Old Testament. These are Gentiles who've had no exposure to the Old Testament. And so he has to meet them where they are. But wonder of wonders, when we bring the gospel to where people at, it is powerful unto salvation. And so Paul tells them 
We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he brings a point of contact that, that they have been living in God's world, enjoying God's good gifts. Verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. Verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is Paul's bringing the gospel to these people who have zero biblical background. This is important for us to consider in our own day and age. You know, I shared the percentage and the announcements of our state that is in a church any given morning. Our cultural context as the years go on is going to increasingly be more like what Paul is experiencing here at Lystra uh, than Harrodsburg 20 or 30 years ago. We are going to increasingly come across men and women and children who have zip, zilch knowledge when it comes to the Bible. And yet, because the gospel is truth and good news, there are points of contact with those who have no idea who God is. Because they live in a world that God has created. They enjoy the good gifts that God has created. And the fact of the matter is, despite the increasing biblical illiteracy that is existing in our day and age, such that we are living in what is called the post-Christian age, many people take it for granted all of this had to come from somewhere, from someone. They just don't know. They're like, as we see later on in Acts, the Athenians worshiping the unknown God. Now, my generation, uh, the millennials and younger, the, the largest religious preference when it comes on polls is no religious affiliation. But we should not mistake that and think that they have no religious convictions. The fact of the matter is uh, that we have a great many people that we see on a day-to-day basis uh, uh, that would say that they're spiritual but not religious. They believe in some type of God, they just don't know who he is. And we have the great opportunity of introducing people to the one true and living gods, whereas they have lived their lives devoted to vain things. And so we see this gospel create a community in the midst of this opposition. Luke tells us in verse 19 that, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. You gotta love the persistence of his enemies. Not only do they have enemies that are popping up where they go, but they have people that are going out of their way to bring division with them. So again, verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead.
But they, they didn't factor in that there had been people who heard and believed and were loyal to the gospel. And so these people who heard and believed showed care for Paul. We're told in verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, so those that who had come to believe the gospel, they gathered about him. And what does Paul do? Now, Paul is a picture of determination. You know, sometimes we think we have our bad days, but I don't think any of us have had a day where people have been throwing 10, 15, 20 pound stones at us to kill us. But, which is what they would do. They think he's dead. They walk away. They leave him. The disciples get around to check on him. They probably think he's dead too, but what does Paul do? He gets up, he dusts himself off, and he goes back to town. He went on with Barnabas to Derby, continues preaching the gospel. And it says in verse 21, when they preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. See, what was going on is, as Paul's making disciples, he's planting churches. See, we need to be exceedingly clear in our day and age. This, what we do as the body of Christ together, is not optional. Church is not something that man thought of. We live in a day and time when even those who profess to be followers of Christ say that they don't want organized religion. Often I think to myself, what do you want? Do you want disorganized religion? See, the gospel creates community. God's plan A is the church. The, 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 Paul, Barnabas, there are others, they're disciples making disciples. And so as they're making their way back, they're going backwards to where they have been to make sure that the gospel has had its intended result of making communities of disciples that make other disciples. That was Jesus' plan. That's why he said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let us not buy into the myth that this is an optional aspect of the Christian life. We read the New Testament. The New Testament is very clear. Paul writes many of his letters, and the majority of his commands are in the plural because they are to organized bodies of believers. They are to churches. The author of the epistles of Hebrews tells us that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the want of some, but that we are to gather together as the day is drawing near to stir each other up to love and to good works. So we see here, even at this early stage in Acts, that the gospel creates community. Think about this. Think about this. As these individuals are getting saved out of a background of paganism, 
they're being separated from their unbelieving family. They can't go and offer sacrifices to Zeus. They can't be part of the pagan guilds that they were part of. You know, an aspect of the socioeconomic realities of that day is many of the trades had guilds, and part of the guild practice was idolatry and sexual immorality. So you have these new believers that, that find themselves cut off and isolated from society because they do not have the same beliefs and values of the society that they were once in. So they need the church. We need the church. So Paul makes his way back. Verse 23, and Paul is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. They're to continue in that which has been entrusted in them. Jude would speak of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They are supposed to continue on growing as disciples, growing in their knowledge of Christ and his will, and growing in their obedience and teaching others to do likewise. And Paul is very realistic in his expectations for them. Notice what he tells them, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I guarantee you, you're going to face hardship if you're a follower of Christ. If you want an easy life in this day and age, don't be a follower of Christ. If you want easy, don't follow Christ. Because if you're following Christ, uh, the, the direction of society in the world is against you. Just like it was against Jesus. But I guarantee you that it will be harder for you at eternity because if you don't follow Christ now, you go to hell. I mean, the choice is we can have tribulations and hardships, crosses and losses in this life, and the joy of heaven and eternity with Christ, or, or we can have all that we want now and not have Christ for eternity. This wasn't a one-off thing. This was a, a continual emphasis for the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted it very clear that this was the life that a believer was called to. Apostle Paul would remind his son in the faith, Timothy, of this very episode in his life. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul wrote Timothy... You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patient, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That's what we've been reading about the past couple weeks. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord Jesus rescued me. And Paul here... Decades later, he's at the end of the, li the line. He has run the race, and he says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So I tell you, if you're a follower of Christ, the world is against you. You know, sometimes uh, we think uh, that there are people out to get us. Well, we have a very real enemy, Satan, and he's out to get us. 
And He will use all the powers that He has in this world to work against us. Which is why we need our brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is why we need each other. Which is why Paul is trying to strengthen the communal bonds that have come as a result of the gospel. So not as part of his strengthening, Luke tells us in verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So these weren't isolated believers. This was a recognizable church. The New Testament is very clear uh, on what a church should be. A, a church has a recognizable membership where somebody is either a member, a part of the church, or they're not. We see this in Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, that if somebody is acting like an unbeliever, we're to confront them about their sin. If they won't listen to us, we're to bring another person. If they won't listen to us and somebody else, we're to tell it, Jesus says, to the church. And if they won't listen to the church, we're to treat them as a tax collector and an unbeliever. Paul would make the very same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're not to associate with any brother who identifies themselves with a life of ungodliness. And yet we live in a day and time where this understanding that we see coming at us from the pages of Scripture is very much ignored. You know, there are individuals that try to argue that a church is any time that two or three Christians get together. So if two or three Christians run into each other at the produce department of Kroger, well, that's a church. Well, it's not. If we're fans of the New Testament, we're fans of Jesus, we're fans of organized religion. There's an organization here. Notice, he appoints for them elders. If you, we see what an elder is, uh, uh, two places in Scripture, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. Paul sends Titus back to Crete to put elders in place. First Titus chapter 1, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what, was, what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must be, not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to... The trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it, here, right at the beginning of Paul's missionary journey, he's making sure that there are elders slash pastors, or if you use the King James, bishops, overseers. He is making sure that there is order and leadership in the church. And we, we know that order and leadership are important. If you don't believe me, go to a McDonald's when the manager's out. Go to any restaurant and have the manager out. You're, you're guaranteed to have a terrible experience. 
And then you're going to ask the sales associate, the person that registered, can I speak to the manager? Oh, the manager's not in today. No wonder. And we understand that every area of life needs leadership and authority. That's why we don't let children govern themselves. You know, imagine, you know, teacher says, okay, kids, here's the lessons. You guys are going to teach yourself. I'm going to go hang out at the lounge the rest of the semester. Guaranteed disaster. And so we see that the gospel is creating a community, that there's order. There's a community within the community. There are churches in these communities. There are disciples who are being t- taught and discipled by older believers so that they could reach others with the gospel. And it brings with it joy. So Paul commits them to the Lord in the, whom they believed, and he continues tracing his way back to Antioch. In verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of the Lord for the work, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had been fulfilled. They had been commended. There was joy. They had been sent out to proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles. The church in Antioch had no idea how this was going to go, and they hear it, and they are pleased. They are satisfied that the gospel is going forth. Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that the Lord had done with them. Notice who they're giving the credit to. Not all that they had done. I think this is a good reminder for anyone and what we do in the church. It's not what we do. It's what the Lord does with us. We're instruments, uh, to borrow a book title, we're instruments in the Redeemer's hands. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they're happy to hear about what Paul does. And so Luke tells us with his understatement, verse 28, and they remain no little time with the disciples. There's sometimes uh, back in the day when missionaries did slideshows, uh, those seemed like things, oh, can we get this over with? Not another slide. Looking at the watch, but it wasn't that case here. Probably because Paul didn't have a slideshow. He just had stories of lives transformed by the gospel. And they were glad to hear it. They were glad to have Paul around to tell them that all God had done. Now the fact of the matter is God's still working today. God is saving lives. We've got disaster, uh, as Kentucky Baptists, we have disaster relief workers uh, that had just come back from ministering in Oklahoma. And you know people got saved as a result of that. There are going to be disaster relief workers going up to New England to assist with those who have been devastated by that flooding. And you know what's going to happen? There are going to be people that get saved as a result of that. We have thousands of International Mission Board missionaries uh, serving in dark places, 
Some places so dangerous uh, that the WMU ladies will tell you in their monthly magazine that only their initials can be put because if their name were published, it would be a target on them. We have missionaries serving in such dangerous places that when they are commissioned by the IMB to go to the country that they're going to, their name and their face, they do not publicly appear at the commissioning service. We have IMB missionaries serving in such dangerous places that when they take classes at their seminaries, some cases they have to serve under a pseudonym. I've had uh, some classes like that where the person's name wasn't really their name because where they're going, where they serve, where they're making much of Christ is so dangerous. But God is at work. Lives are being transformed. And because of that, the gospel brings joy. And so we see the gospel brings division. You know, some of us, Following Christ is going to mean that people, some people are going to like us a lot less. Now some of us, if we were more open with our faith, our family might not invite us for the holidays as much as they would. But the great thing is that in the division, the separation, the separation from light and darkness, the separation between believer and unbeliever, God gives us a new community. He gives us a new family. Have you ever noticed how when Paul writes his epistles or Peter or the others, what do they call other Christians? They call them brothers and sisters. Because we have a new family. We have a new community through the gospel. And through the gospel, the Lord entrusts us to one another. It's the basis of the New Testament. And as I said, unfortunately, it's something that has fallen upon hard times. There was a time when individuals understood their commitment to one another. There was a time, even in our church, But if you joined this church, you understood that you were entrusted to the Lord and you were entrusted to each other. There was a time that if you were baptized in this church, you would have received this book and your baptismal certificate would be in here. And you would have read the church covenant which said, having been led as we receive by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, And on the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, we do now, in the presence of God, angels in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into the covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We engage, therefore, by the aid of the Holy Spirit to walk together in Christian love, to strive for the advancement of this church in knowledge holiness and comfort, to promote its prosperity and spirituality, to sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry and expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel among all through all nations. 
We also engage to maintain family and secret devotions, to maintain, to religiously educate our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to walk circumspectly in the world, to be just in our dealings, faithful in our engagements, and exemplary in our deportment, to avoid all tattling, backbiting, and excessive anger, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating beverages as drinks his beverages, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress, to cultivate Christian sympathy in feeling and courtesy in speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. We moreover engage that when we remove from this place, we will as soon as possible unite with some other church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. You know, when Paul entrusts these churches to the grace of God and he encourages them to continue in the faith, that's a picture of what it looked like. They weren't a loose, amalgamous group of people going. There was a commitment to one another that flowed out of the gospel-created community. And that's the New Testament model. And with it brings joy when men and women are saved, when the gospel works in our lives daily, making us more like Christ, making us more caring for one another. Is we draw to an near and uh, we come to a time of invitation. I tell you that if you haven't accepted Christ, you don't have a true part in this community. You don't have a true part in the New Covenant community. You don't have fellowship with Christ, which is the basis of all gospel fellowship in the local church. You might even be a member of the church, but I tell you, if your faith is not resting in Christ, then your name on the paper means very little. When the great judgment day comes and the books are opened, one of the books that's not going to be opened is our membership role. Jesus isn't going to open up all the church members. Well, oh, you're a member there. Come on in. The grounds of salvation is genuine faith in Christ. And I I would ask you as we come to this time of invitation, search your hearts. Test yourself to see if you're in the Lord. And if you're not, I would invite you to come to him. And for those of us who are believers, the invitation is for us to recommit ourselves to continuing in the faith. To continue our faithfulness to the church. Because we understand that it is not a plan B. It's not an optional aspect it's not like a buffet line where, you know, we have prayer and Bible reading and, you know, church attendance might be the broccoli on the buffet line that we can sp- skip. The gospel inevitably creates a community. Let us be committed to that. Because in being committed to that, we are showing our commitment to the Lord. Let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray uh, that if uh, there are any here this morning who have not 
trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, uh, that you would open their eyes to that, that they would not place their assurance or their confidence in anything but Jesus saving life, death, and resurrection. And for those of us who are believers, we pray uh, that we would be all the more committed to your work in and through this church. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.